Actress Michelle Pfeiffer appeared on the cover of a magazine, and the title on the magazine said, What Michelle Pfeiffer Needs is Absolutely Nothing. However, as a reporter soon discovered, it turned out she needed over $1,500 worth of touch-up work on that cover photo. <laughs> this is uh, some of the list of things that he found the touch-up artist Bill listed. Clean up complexion, soften eye and smile lines, add color to lips, trim the chin, remove necklines, add blush to cheek, remove stray hair, add forehead and hair to the top of her head, and on and on the list goes. So the next time you look at one of those pictures, just remember uh, that when you're looking at what they absolutely need. So on the surface, it looked like this movie star didn't need anything. And yet the truth of the matter was, she needed a lot of behind-the-scenes work. As we turn in our Bible today to the Old Testament book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings is near the beginning of your Bible. It's between First and Second uh, Chronicles, Kings. Uh, just If you go to Psalms, go backwards. If you're not familiar with where the book of Kings is, it's near the beginning of your Bible there. We're going to be looking at 2 Kings today and next week at, at two men that are mentioned there. And the first one we're going to look at today is a man by the name of Naaman. And what we're going to see is that Naaman is a man who needed some work. Now, on the work that he needed was not just a little touch-up job, because the Bible tells us he had leprosy. So he had a, a disease. And we're going to find today that it went well below the surface. The this disease of leprosy uh, was not the only disease this man dealt with. He struggled with something called pride, as we're going to see today. So I invite you to look with me at 2 Kings chapter 5 as we look at this story of the man named Naaman. And as we're looking at the need that Naaman had, I want you to look at your own life this morning. I want you to think about the things that we're seeing about Naaman. I want you to look at your life and ask, what kind of work would you need God to do in your life? For some, it may just be a touch-up by the master. For others, it may be a complete overhaul. But regardless of the work that you need done in your life or in mine, we, God is able to meet that need. So I invite you now to look with me at 2 Kings chapter 5. It begins by saying, Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected. Because of him, because of him, the Lord, don't miss that, the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior. Now, this is a very brief but impressive resume. As we begin to unpack it, what we see is Naaman was the commander of the army of Aram, and he's a valiant warrior. He's not just a desk jockey barking orders from behind the lines. This is a guy who's out on the front line, and he's instrumental in bringing his country victory. Now, we see that even though he's a pagan officer, the person giving him these gifts and abilities is God. And we need to remember that in our own lives. The, the things that we have and the things that we're able to do ultimately come from God. Now, not only is he a great military man, but we see he has the respect of the king and the people. This guy is rich. He's respected. He's powerful. And on the surface, it looks like he needs absolutely nothing. But then we come to the end of his resume, and we see he has a need. Because the end of verse 1 says he was also a leper. Now, you can search the internet and find pictures of what happens to people with untreated leprosy. 
It's actually a disease that attacks the nerves, and when you can't feel things, the body is injured, and the, the resulting injury and infection in things is what causes people to lose fingers and toes and hands and even arms and legs from the disease, the damage that happens as this disease progresses. And so as we're reading about this great and valiant warrior who wielded a sword for the king of Aram, what we're told is that there will come a day where he probably will not even have a hand to hold a sword for this king. And not only would the king lose his top officer, but Naaman would ultimately lose his life. Now into this very bleak picture breaks a ray of hope because of what we find in verses 2 through 5. There it says now, the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and he told his master. So he goes to the king and he says, thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, go now. And I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed, and he took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. So the king of Aram hears that there's a potential to save this officer of his. There is a way to cure what was thought to be an incurable disease in that day. And so he spares no expense. He sends his, his commander into Israel, and we're told he sends 10 talents of silver. Now, that would be equal to 200 years worth of wages for the average person. Let that amount of money sink in for a moment. That's 200 years worth of wages. He also sends 6,000 shekels of gold. That's the equivalent of 150 pounds of gold, millions of dollars worth of gold in our day. And then we read there were 10 changes of clothes. Now you may go, what's that doing in there? I mean, in our day, we have closets and dressers full of clothes. But in that day, remember, people only had typically one set of clothes. Clothing was very valuable. And so when it says there are 10 changes of clothes that are sent, this is something of extreme value, especially when you remember this is designer stuff. This is one king sending clothes to another king. This isn't just your off-the-rack stuff that, that the basic person would, would try to have. This is, this is really nice clothing. And that'll come into play next week when we look at the second part of this story. Now in verses 6 through 10, it says, And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now, as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And it came about when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes. And he said, Am I God? to kill and to make alive, and this man is sending word to me to cure this man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he's seeking a quarrel against me. Now you remember as you read through the Bible, people would tear their clothing as a sign of mourning. It was, it was a sign of deep distress. And, and we get a hint as to why the king of Israel is so distressed by looking at verse 2. Because there we, we read that this little girl had been taken captive in Israel and carried back to Aram. So what's happening is there are these cross-border raids that are taking place. The enemy is crossing the border and, and attacking the, the villages along the border, and the king of Israel is powerless to stop them. And so what the king of Israel says at this point is, this is just a way to justify them starting an all-out war when I don't fulfill this impossible demand. This, this king of Aram knows that nobody but God can cure leprosy. 
And he says he just wants an all-out war, and this is his excuse. Now, this threat of war is compounded when you look back at the history because as you look at the history of what's happening at this time, the king of Israel right now is named Joram. He's the, he's the son of King Ahab. Now, you've probably heard about old King Ahab. In 1 Kings 20, he had been at war with King Ben-Hadab, who was the king of Aram, the current king at the time. And Ben-Hadad had been set to destroy Ahab and take over the kingdom of Israel, uh, the kingdom of Israel until Jehovah intervened. And he pushed back this foreign king, even though you had this wicked king Ahab in place, God spared the land because it was his chosen people. And so what happens now is Joram says, well, Ben-Hadad is coming in to finish what he started with my dad. And he says, we're powerless. We can't even keep the guy from crossing the border. How are we going to win in an all-out war? And so as this is happening, the, the king of Israel tears his clothing. He sits down and he throws a pity party. And in the midst of this, uh, it's interrupted in verse 8 because we read, and it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now, you'll remember when Joram first read this, the king of Israel read this letter, he said, am I God? So you would think he would turn to God, right? If you were the king of Israel, you'd say, let's turn to the God of Israel. Let's turn to the true God. But the problem is, Joram, remember, uh, his mom and dad were Queen Jezebel and King Ahab, who didn't believe in the true God. They chased after the pagan gods. And in fact, they were trying to kill all of the true prophets of the true God. And so uh, he doesn't want to turn to this guy, Elisha, and ask for help. If you look at 2 Kings chapter 3, the king from Israel, uh, there were three kings who went to war. One was from Israel, one was from Judah. Remember, the, the nation had split into the northern and southern kingdoms. And there was also the king of Edom. And they got together to go to war with the king of Moab. I'm giving you all this background story so you know what is happening in this passage. And so these three kings, two from the nation of Israel and this other foreign ally, go against the king of Moab. And things do not go well for them. They're losing. And it tells us in 2 Kings 3, 11 through 12, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, this is the southern kingdom, says, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And, and one of the kings of Israel's servants answered and said, Well, Elijah, the son of Shaphat, is here, who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah, the other great prophet. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So this southern king is saying to the northern king, Why don't we get the prophet to come over here? And so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Now, in verse 13, we tell what happens when these three kings show up. Now Elijah said to the king of Israel, what do I have to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. Joram shows up and he says, uh, why don't you go to the, the gods that your mom and dad worship? Go to Baal. Go uh, worship, go, go seek the help of these, these pagan gods. Why are you coming to me asking for help from the true God? And, and Joram had followed through on his parents' footsteps, so this is why he's not going to help. Now, at the time, Elisha does end up helping. 
And the reason he does that is because the king of Judah, the southern king, is there who is still worshiping the true God. So what happens is, uh, Joram already knows the last time he showed up asking Elisha for help, it didn't go well. So he says, I'm not going to humble myself. I'm not going to go and ask this guy for help because I already know what he's going to tell me. But God tells Elisha what's happening, and he says, you need to, you need to be part of this. And so Elisha sends word uh, to the king, and he says, tell Naaman to come here. Send him to my house, and we will let him see that there truly is a God in the land of Israel who is the true God. So verse 9 tells us, so Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Now, picture this. You're, you're in your you know, dining room, you're looking out the front window, and suddenly the presidential motorcade pulls up, because that's what this is like. He's, he's in this little backwood shack, and all of a sudden, this entourage shows up at his house. There are chariots, war stallions. There's the bodyguards of the, the, the five, you know, this is the commander-in-chief's four-star general. The, you know, there, there's this entourage, this massive army that shows up at the door. It's a very impressive uh, setup. And, I, and I, it, I said it's a little shack, and it is because as you look at 2 Kings 6.1, there it tells us this place where they were living was too small for them. And we'll talk more about that next week when we look at what Gehazi does. So there's this presidential uh, entourage that shows up at your front door. And instead of running out the front door in awe as to what's happening, Elisha doesn't even come out. In fact, what he does in verse 10, it says, And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. Now, I, I asked you to put yourself in the place of Elisha for a minute. Now, switch roles and put yourself in Naaman's position. You pull up. You're in all your, you know, finery. You've got your shining armor on. You've got your, your hat with the big plume showing you're, you're the guy. And everybody's around. And you're expecting this, this great prophet that you've heard of to come out. And instead, a servant comes out. And the guy tells you to go jump in a river. That, that's literally what he does, right? He, he says, uh, go, go jump in the Jordan seven times. Now, I'm sure at first there was silence. He's, he's kind of looking around like going, this is a joke, right? And then there's fury. He goes, that's it? That's it? Do you know who I am? Do you, do you know where I've come from? I mean, a moment ago, I was at the palace, and they at least knew what to do. Remember, the king there was shaking in his shoes. The guy's tearing his clothes. He's, he's, he's in mourning. He's scared. At, at least this guy showed proper deference and respect to me. And, and now I show up here, and, and you send out a lowly servant? And, and the guy tells me to go jump in, in a river? He says, I've traveled all the way out here to the sticks. I mean, the guy's looking at this little shack, waiting for the great prophet to come out. And instead, this little servant comes out. And so verse 11 says, Naaman was furious, and he went away. I wonder if anyone here has ever felt like Naaman before. 
Have you ever gotten mad at God? Have you ever thought God's going to work a certain way? He's going to do something for you in a certain way, and, and then he doesn't? Something completely unexpected is, happens, or you read something and you're going, that's it? That, that's what God wants me to do here? I think of the story of a, a young man who was trying to be a missionary one day. He had gone through all the initial tests. He had his theology checked. He had his character references checked. And he had gone through uh, all of the deputation process. But before he could be cleared to go to the missions field, they wanted him to meet with a veteran missionary who had spent his life serving in a foreign field. And so he went to meet with this retired missionary for the final interview. And the young man was told to be at this missionary's home at 5 a.m. in the morning the next day. So the next morning came. It was still dark outside. It was, it was up north where it was cold and snowing. And so this young man had to crawl out of his warm bed. He had to trudge through the snow uh, to get to this missionary's house. And when he gets there, there's a note on the front door that says, let yourself in and sit on the bench and wait for me. So the, the young man opens the door. He comes in. The house is dark. He sees a bench. He closes the door and just sits down there. Now he's sitting there in the dark. 30 minutes pass. An hour passes. A second hour passes. The guy's kind of half nodding in and out of sleep as he's sitting there in the dark on this hard bench. And suddenly he's startled awake by an alarm clock. And as he hears this alarm clock, he looks down this dark hallway and he notices this man getting out of his bed. Remember, he's been sitting there for two hours. This man gets out of bed. He's rubbing sleep from his eyes. He walks down the dark hallway. He walks right past the young man, doesn't even acknowledge his presence. He walks into the kitchen. He makes himself some coffee. He doesn't even offer this guy a cup of coffee. He comes walking up, holding a cup of coffee, looks at the young man, and he says, what's, what, what's today? And the guy tells him what day it is. He says, what's two plus two? He says, four. The missionary says, okay, thanks for coming. And then he walks off without saying anything to the guy. And he's sitting there, and the, the guy's going back to his bedroom. He sees he's still sitting there, and he said, you can go, that's it. The interview's over. And he closes the bedroom door. This missionary-to-be doesn't know what in the world has just happened. He collects his stuff. He gets his coat and gloves and hat on, and he leaves. If you had been that guy, what would you be thinking at that moment? How would you be feeling? Well, let me read to you the report from the missions board that they got regarding this interview. The veteran missionary said, This man will make a fine missionary. He's willing to deny his own comforts, coming through the bitter cold to meet with me. He is prompt, arriving at the scheduled time of 5 a.m. He's patient and forgiving, sitting for two hours in the dark, and he does not respond negatively when he's treated poorly. He's a humble man, willing to answer simple questions without complaining. This man will make a fine missionary. You know, the candidate didn't have a clue as to what was happening, did he? But the person giving the test knew exactly what was needed. What was needed to successfully serve God as he went into a foreign field and, and, and needed the heart to be able to serve in those places. And as we're looking at this story with Naaman 
as God gives these instructions. You know, on the surface, it makes absolutely no sense as we're reading it. But we know that God knows what Naaman needs in his life. God is giving a test that goes right to the heart of what Naaman really needs for his healing. And there may be times as you think of your own life that things happen to you that make absolutely no sense. But remember in those times that God knows what he's doing, and we can trust God as he's taking us through things. As we look at the case of Naaman, he said he wanted to be healed, right? And so God says, fine, do this, and you'll be healed. Now, God said, do this, your flesh shall be restored to you, you shall be clean. And Naaman says, but I thought he would surely come out to me and and stand and call on the name of the Lord as God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leopard. Naaman says, look, I... I saw one of those TV preachers once, right? I I, I know how this is supposed to happen. The the guy's supposed to come out. He's supposed to slap you on the head and go, be healed. And, and, you know, you're healed. And, you know, I I, I want the flash. I I don't want to splash around in a river. I mean, isn't that what we do? We say, God, you know, I, I think I saw this once. I know how this is supposed to happen. And we want God to do it our way. And and what God sometimes says to us is, you know, you want me to work in your life? It doesn't always come with big fireworks. It, It doesn't always happen the way that you read about or want it to be. He says, often the way that I work is through you humbly trusting me and through you obeying what I've revealed to you in my written word. And God tells us sometimes, this this is all you need. And it may not be fireworks and flash, but this is my word, and this is what I want you to do. Now, Naaman didn't want to do that, did he? He, he? he does what many of us do. He says, I don't like what God's proposed, so let me create my own options, right? Naaman says, no, 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 let me tell you how it's supposed to be. The prophet's going to come out, and he's going to wave his hand over the leprosy, and, and, and he's going to pronounce something, and, and that's how I'm going to be healed. He says in verse 12, if I was going to go wash in a river, could I not have done that at home? He says, are not the Abana and the Farfar, uh, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. Now, the Greeks used to call the Abana the Golden River. It was this beautiful, pristine uh, river. And if you've ever been to the Jordan River, you know it's, it's not that impressive. It's kind of a small, muddy little river. And so as he is describing the Jordan River, he's he's being really accurate here. If it was the water that was going to heal him, uh, then he's right. He had better options at home, purer, bigger rivers to go splash around in. But it wasn't the water that was going to heal him. Rather, it was his willingness to humble himself and follow through in obedience that would bring the healing. What was keeping him from acting is the root issue that God was going after. Remember, the one giving the test says, I know what is really needed. And he says, Naaman, you've got a problem. And it's not this surface problem of leprosy. It goes all the way to your heart. You're proud. And he says, I have to do heart surgery on you first. God could have sent Elisha, the great prophet, out to meet the great commander 
of the army of Aram, but instead he sends out a little servant. He sends out the lowest guy on the totem pole to tell the greatest guy in Aram to go jump in a river. And it's humbling. It's too big of a blow to his ego, which is why he turns away in a rage. Now, verse 13 tells us, Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? You see, Naaman had come to God with his Gucci bags full of gold, right? He, he, he came with his garments and his gold, and he said, I'm going to buy my healing. He said, I've got so much stuff here, there is nobody who can say no to this. There are millions and millions of dollars worth of stuff here. Who, who can say no to that? And he said, just in case somebody was going to say, well, you know, your stuff isn't good enough. He says, I'm, I'm Naaman. I'm the commander of the army of Aram. I'm this valiant warrior. I'm this great guy. You give me any task, I will do it. I'm the guy who can do whatever is needed. He says, I, I, I can buy my healing or I can earn my healing. You choose which way you want it to happen. The one thing he wasn't prepared to do was humble himself. Are there any Naamans here this morning? Did, did anyone named Naaman walk in here this morning where we say, God, I'm so great. I can earn my way to heaven. I can be good enough. You tell me what to do, I'll do it, and then some. God, what's it going to cost me? How much do I need to put in the offering plate? How many good things do I need to do? And what God says to all of us here this morning is, that won't do it. That won't do it. I don't care how impressive your resume is, men and women, boys and girls, because we all have a resume that reads just like Naaman's, and it all ends with the words that we're lepers. We're all like Naaman. You can be great in your own right, and yet what the Bible tells us is we're all lepers. We all have a fatal disease called sin. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us here is a leper. We have a problem called sin. And, and like Naaman, we have a death sentence. And what God offers to us is what he offered to Naaman. He says, if you will humble yourself, if you will acknowledge your need for me in your life, then I will heal you. He tells us in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. There's a gift. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. It's why Ephesians 2.8.9 tells us, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. And here was Naaman, a man who was faced with a terminal illness, and there was a cure for it. It required him to humble himself and to follow through in obedience to what God had said. And the Bible tells us in Matthew 18, 3, 
Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. God says it doesn't matter how great you are, how good you are, and how many good things you've done, unless you come to me, unless you humble yourself, become like a little child, and acknowledge your need for me to be your Savior, you will not be saved. Salvation is a gift from God, received by faith alone. And so now Naaman has a choice. Would he maintain his pride and leave with leprosy? Or would he humble himself, act in humble obedience? Verse 14 tells us, So he went down, and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. Now, I want you to think about how hard this is for him. Remember, Naaman has just had this big grandstanding speech. He stood in front of everybody and said, I won't do this. How dumb is this? He leaves in a rage. And when it says he went down to the Jordan, if you look at where Elisha was, the Jordan River is 25 miles away from where they are. Naaman didn't just walk out over and go dip in the river. He had to get back in his chariot. The whole entourage had to go travel. They had to go get to where the Jordan was. And so he's got a lot of time to think as he's going along, doesn't he? And he's there. They get to this place. They stop. They look down at the Jordan River. There's this you know, muddy hillside maybe that he's going to have to slip and slide to get down. He, he, he stops his chariot, this gilded uh, chariot. He's got war stallions there. He's wearing his, his full armor. He's got this helmet on. Nice, bright, shiny helmet. Have you ever seen uh, what, what people in those days wore? They had these big plumes. I mean, this thing that, you know, you've seen the, the, the military officers in our day that have the, you know, they call them the eggs on, their, on the brim of their hat there, the scrambled eggs. You know, this is this guy. He's got this big, big military hat on. And he steps down out of the back of his chariot, and the first thing he does is he reaches up and he takes off his helmet. And he hands it to his servant. And then they come over and they begin unfastening his armor. And this, this, isn't, you know, this, this, this isn't the battle rattle you wear today that's kind of camouflaged. And, and you know, this, this is shiny stuff. It's got all the crests and the things. This, this shows that this is the guy. And piece by piece it's coming off. And, and now he's down to his, his robes, very fine robes underneath. And those come off too. Piece by piece, this guy is going down, 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 right? Now he's standing there in his underwear. And they go, it's time to go down to the river, sir. And he goes down the bank. And you can see him to probably pause as he gets to the edge of the river. He wades in. He, he, he gets about chest deep into the river. This, this muddy water flowing by him, and he's thinking, really? Well, I'm here. I may as well do it. He dips his head down once, twice, three times. Each time he comes up, the dirty water running off him, he's, he's looking at himself going, this is dumb. I'm getting dirty, not clean. Fourth time, fifth time. Six time into the water, nothing. He goes, okay, one more time. 
He dips down into the water a seventh time, and as he comes up, it, it tells us that this battle-scarred, hardened man suddenly has a cover girl complexion, right? I mean, look at it. It says that he suddenly has the skin of a child. This, this guy holds up his arm where the leprosy had been, and, and, and suddenly there's no leprosy. In fact, he sees this baby-smooth skin, and he's, he's astonished. And he's, he's looking all over. His, his flesh, it says in verse 14, was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. You know, I, I wonder if God did this so that his outward appearance would match his, his new inward heart, right? This guy has humbled himself. He's been changed inside and out. He, he comes splashing out of the water, running up the side of the hill. Everybody's looking at this guy in astonishment. And, and, and he says, uh, we, we've got to get back to the prophet's house. I don't know if he even took time to get all his gear slapped back on him. He probably just said, throw a robe on me, let's go. Verse 15 tells us, when he returned to the man of God with all his company, uh, it says, and, and he came out and stood before him. And he said, behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. Now Elisha comes out, right? Elisha comes out and says, oh, Naaman, you're looking good. <laughs> and he says, yeah. And you know, I looked up and I saw God. And I know there is a God. Only one true God, and he's here in Israel. And he says, you know, notice the change. Naaman now calls himself a servant. He says, I'm a servant, and I'm a believer in the one true God. And as he professes his new faith, as his gratitude is overflowing, he says, I want to give a gift. I want to give you a gift. He's not trying to buy his healing more. This is appropriate. You know, when God has done something great in your life, you know how you give thanksgiving to him? You praise him. You maybe give him a thank you gift. When, when God's work is done that has affected you or a loved one, you want to support that ministry. This is Naaman. He's saying, look, I want to give you something for what God's done to me. 2 Kings 5.16 says, But Elisha said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it. Naaman says, no, no, really. And, and Elisha says, no, I'm not going to take a thing. Now, again, there was nothing inappropriate with, about receiving the gift. Why do you think Elisha said, I don't want a thing? Because Naaman had showed up thinking, I can buy my healing. I can earn my healing. The king of Aram sent all this stuff, said, what's it going to take? We will pay any price. And when he gets back to Aram and everybody says, you're healed, Naaman, what did it cost you? Elisha wants him to be able to say, it didn't cost me a penny. What? Yeah. They wouldn't take anything. They said it was free. They said it was a free gift. No, no, really. How much? Did he take 75 pounds of the 150 pounds of gold? Did he take five of the He took nothing? Nothing. It's free. You know, when I was in high school, I was a brand new believer. I came to faith at the age of 16. 
I'd been raised Roman Catholic, and like many of you who come from a Catholic background, I, I lived my life in a system of sacramental works, going to church and confession and, and doing the things, and I was always wondering, am I in or out? You know, how, you know if I were to die at this moment, what, how many millions of years am I going to be in a place called purgatory, which doesn't exist in the Bible? And, and I was always trying to earn my way to God. And then I came to understand what grace was. It was a free gift. And so as this 16-year-old kid who had just come to understand grace, I'm involved in my local church there in Dallas. It was called Grace Bible Church. It was in the North Dallas area. It was on Inwood Road, which is a very affluent part of the city of Dallas. And this, uh, we would do evangelistic car washes. We would put signs out along Inwood Road. And, and it would say, free car wash. And people would pull into the church parking lot, and we'd tell them, you know, just park your car right here, go over to this area, and we'd have refreshments set up. And you'd sit down, and you could get something to drink and little snacks while we would clean your car. And while we're cleaning your car, there are people over here sharing the gospel with you. And uh, I'm up next in line to clean the next car that comes, and a guy pulls up in a Rolls Royce. So he pulls into the parking lot, they stop, and I'm like, oh, Rolls Royce, wow, this is nice. Uh, and I start cleaning the car. And there's this guy over there, I can see him, he's decked out in you know, gold jewelry and diamonds, and just kind of people are talking, he's kind of waving them off while I get the, the car finished. And, and the guy comes walking over, he looks at his car, walks around, he says, hey, that was a nice job, kid. He pulls out his wallet and he pulls a $50 bill out, and he hands it to me. And I said, uh, thank you, sir, but the car wash is free, just like salvation. It's a free gift. And he goes, yeah, that's what they were telling me over there. He said, kid, nothing's free in life. And I said, no, no, sir, it's, it's a free car wash, just like the gift of salvation. He looks at me, he's holding his 50, he stuffs it back in his wallet. Now, remember, this is 1972, so uh, minimum wage at the time was $1.60 an hour. I was working at Burger King. I mean, that 50 was an entire week's worth of work alone. So then, then he pulls out a $100 bill, and he says, here, take this. And I'm looking at that thinking, well, that's two weeks of paycheck at Burger King, right? <laughs> but I said, I said uh, uh, no, sir, that's... The, 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 you know, I'm choking the words out. It's, it's free, just like salvation. He's looking at me, stuffs the hundred back in. He reaches in, he pulls out the entire wad of cash. I don't even know how much was in there, but it was a lot. It's a year's worth of my work at Burger King, probably. <laughs> and he holds that out, and he goes, here, kid, this is for you. And now I'm really choking, right? So, no, 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 sir, it's, it's free, just like salvation. He says, kid, I heard that. Look, nothing's free in life. And then he reaches over, and he undoes his Rolex watch. And he takes this thing off. This isn't a Rolex, by the way. This is a Seiko. <laughs> he holds out this Rolex to me, and he says, here, this is for you. Well, by now, everybody has stopped you know, everything they're doing. They're all watching me. And the youth leaders over there are like, oh, don't, don't. <laughs> you know, and... and, and I said, no, sir, I can't take that. The, the car wash is free. And he said, kid, do you know what this thing is worth? And, you know, God was helping me at that moment because I didn't know what it was worth. But I just, I said, sir, I know that's worth a lot, but you know, salvation is worth more than that watch. And it's free. And God wants you to have his free gift. And he's holding this wad of money and a Rolex out to me. He goes, you're not going to take this, are you? 
And I said, no, sir, salvation's a free gift, and we want you to have that. He puts his money back in his wallet, puts his watch back on, and he says, I think I need to hear more about this. And he walks over, and he accepts the Lord, you know, there. And as we're reading this passage today, the same thing is happening. Because Naaman shows up, he tries to hand Elisha his Rolex and much more. And Elisha says, no, it's free. It's a free gift. Because when Naaman gets back to Aram, Elisha says it's more important that God is worshipped than I'm wealthy. He says, I want people to understand who God is and the gift he offers. And as Naaman prepares to go back to the land of Aram, we see that that's exactly what he was going to do. He was going to worship God. Because as we read verses 17 through 18, it says that Naaman said, he's saying, you're not going to take my stuff? He says, no. And he says, okay, if not, please let your servant at least be given two mules loads of earth. For your servant will no more offer burnt offerings, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimnan. This is the pagan god in Aram at the time to worship there. And he leans on my hand and I bow myself in the house of Rimnan. When I bow myself in the house of Rimnan, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. You see what's happening in the ancient world, they believed that gods were limited geographically to certain lands. And he says, when I cross the border of Israel back into Aram, the God of Israel can't come with me. But if I take two truckloads of dirt of Israel back home, I can create a little place there in Aram where God can be worshipped because he'll be there in the land. I'm going to make this place, you know, where God is going to be able to be. He, he's a new believer, remember? He doesn't fully understand yet who God is. And he says, but this much I know when I get back there, because I'm the bodyguard to the king, I have to go with him everywhere. And he's going to go into the pagan temple. And I have to go with him into this place where I know this, this remnant is no longer a god. And he says, so when I'm there, will God forgive me for being in that place? Because know that as I'm bowing down, inwardly I'm bowing down to the true God, Jehovah. So as we look at this story this morning, I want you to look at your life again. And I want to ask yourself where you are. How many Naamans are here this morning? who maybe walked in here today thinking, I can get to God by being good enough, by doing enough, or giving him enough. Are you like Naaman? Do you think you can earn your salvation? Do you think you can buy your salvation? If that's who you are this morning, I want you to know that salvation is a free gift. You can't get to God by being good enough. No one can. From the pastor in the pulpit to the saints in the seats. Because the Bible tells us in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's standard of perfection, which is why Jesus Christ, his son, came and he died on a cross to pay the penalty of death that we owe for our sins. And today he offers you that gift of new life, if you will receive it. As Ephesians 2.8.9 tells us, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. 
And so if you're here this morning, you've never received God's gift of new life to you, I invite you to do so now. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. What you do have to do is humble your heart and acknowledge your need for God and to say, God, I realize that I can't get to you by any other way than what your son did as he died on the cross to pay the penalty of death that I owe for my sins. If you'd like to receive his gift to you today, I invite you just to bow your heads and pray this prayer with me. Dear God, I'm a sinner. And I know as a sinner that I deserve the penalty of death. I realize, God, I can't earn my way to you. I can't be good enough to get into heaven by what I do. But it's only by what you did, Jesus. As you came and you died for me, shedding your blood to wash away my sins. I accept your gift of grace today, Jesus. I accept your death in my place. I thank you that you love me enough to leave your throne in heaven, to ultimately go to a cross and die in my place. And today I'm accepting your gift of new life. I'm accepting you, Jesus, to be my personal savior. Thank you for the gift of eternal life I now have and for making me a part of your family. I pray this in Jesus' name.